First Peter chapter five. We're going to look at um, just the first four verses. So for the last, well, not last week, but a couple of weeks before that, we started our series on what is the church, um, just in an effort to get a better understanding of what it is that God is calling us to do here, and agree on some things as far as what life as a congregation is supposed to look like. So we did um, a Sunday Um, answering that question, what is a church? It's the body of Christ. It's the dwelling place of God. Um, And then the following Sunday, we looked at the question, what is a member? And um, basically what we said was that a member is a Christian who is in covenant relationship with other Christians. Um, The thing I didn't say, just this is just, by way of personal opinion, I don't agree with the I, yeah, with I, exactly with the idea that um, when you're in covenant relationship, you should sign a contract. It just seems like antithetical to me to the whole idea of covenant relationship. That's not to say that churches that engage in the, <laughs> in the practice of having members sign a covenant are, you know. The Church of Satan, it just is not something I agree with and not something I'll ever be a party to as long as I'm the pastor somewhere. So I wanted to throw that out there. Um, And I I think I presented that in pretty stark terms, like what's the difference between contract and covenant? Um, If I've been loved by Christ and am being loved by Christ because he's faithful, not because I'm worthy, then I need to transmit that same affection to you. I need to love you and go on loving you, not because you're worthy, whatever that means, but because of the love that I've received from Christ. If I'm doing that and you're doing that, in spite of all of our sins and leftover foibles and failures, we should probably get along okay, right? Generally speaking, there's going to be exceptions and and we all get that. Love being an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. If we can love one another, we should get along all right. Um, And then today what I want to look at is the question, what is a pastor? So that's why we're going to kick it off in 1 Peter 5. Let me pray real quick and then I'll read this. Father, we ask now for your blessing on your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you be in our midst, that you help us focus our minds for a few more minutes Um, so that we might learn something of you and what your expectation is of your church. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 5, 1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, Not typically the first passage a guy goes to when he's going to talk about what is a pastor. And we'll get to the first passage a guy goes to when he's going to talk about that. But I wanted to start here because 
if you want to understand what a pastor is, it's very helpful to see what it is that they do, right? And most of the qualifications passages, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and all of those little sections of Scripture that talk about what kind of life I should have as a pastor, don't really tell you much about what then I go and do as a pastor. So I want to start with what we do, and then we'll see how the qualifications fit into what it is that a pastor or an elder is supposed to be doing. Um, First, I want everybody to understand a couple of things about the word elder here. What comes to your mind when you hear the word elder? Yeah, right? I mean, it's just, the, or Mormons. It's one of those two. You either think of the 18-year-old kid with the name tag that comes to your door and says he's Elder Hezekiah, or you think of an, an elderly person who's got more life experience than other people. It's tractor time outside. Oh, no, it's just a lawnmower. Um, the term implies age and authority. So if you look at the whole of scripture in the old Testament, you've got the elders in Israel and these were the muckety mucks. These were the higher ups. These were the people making decisions and rendering judgment all the way through the new Testament. You've got the elders of, uh, the, the temple at Jerusalem who are kind of responsible for everything we don't like that happens in the early church. These are people in authority and they're generally older. So what I want to do is make sure that we understand when we see the word elder here, when Peter's writing to his fellow elders, it doesn't mean that this has to be somebody over a certain age numerically. What it means is this is somebody who's over a certain point in maturity. Does that make sense? Elder Christian, somebody who's had some experience walking with God. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, and you might as well just keep a thumb in both these passages because we're going to flip back and forth. 1 Timothy 3, verse 6. <clears throat> and this is in the qualifications list. We're going to get to this later. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So an elder is somebody who's been tested in his Christian walk. The problem <laughs> With young men, and the problem with men who are new to the faith, they're almost identical. There is a tendency in all young men to think that history began with them and that they have special knowledge that other men don't have. All young men go through at least a season, and some it's brief, for some like me it goes on for a very long time, where they think that they're smarter than everybody else in the room. And there's absolutely no justification for them to think that but they are not hindered in any way from thinking it. A young Christian has a tendency to think that they know better than they do. Um, there's no substitute for time when it comes to maturing somebody or something. So I like to illustrate it this way. If you take grape juice and put it in the microwave, can you turn it into wine? No. There's a... If you take milk and put it into the microwave, can you turn it into cheese? No. The only thing that's <laughs> the only thing that will give you wine and cheese is is grape juice and milk, and then time, right? It takes time, and the same is true for an elder or a shepherd or a pastor. It takes time. 
If you can't put grape juice in the microwave and turn it into wine, you cannot put a young man into seminary and turn him into a pastor. It makes no difference what his education is. It matters what his experience is. What kind of wisdom has he gained from his life? Now, am I saying you can't be 23, 24 and a pastor? No, I'm not saying that. If you know a 23, 24-year-old man with the kind of experience to speak to you in your 60s about, you know, kind of what life is like, by all means, he can be your pastor. And those men are out there. I was not one of them. I'm 41 and I may still not. We'll find out. We'll see. I just got hit with a newspaper. None of you saw it, but it happened. Verse 2, 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as, you, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So let's look at the word shepherd. We looked at the word elder. We saw what it means. Mature in the faith. That's, that's all I'm saying it means. Mature in the faith. Now we're going to look at the word shepherd. Uh, homeschoolers, feel free to bow out. The rest of you, is this a verb or a noun? It's a verb. It's an action word. Shepherd the flock of God. Do this thing. So what does an elder do? Well, it's an action word, and it means look after the sheep. The idea of the sheep and his shepherds, or the, the sheep and their shepherd, this whole illustration of the pastor and the church has its limitations, okay? Because I don't think what, what the Holy Spirit is trying to imply is that, you know, as the pastor, it's my job to guide the poor dumb sheep who, without me, wouldn't be able to accomplish anything. I think that's not really the biblical purpose. I think what the Bible is trying to communicate is to guys like me, this very important concept. Hey, uh, shepherds were not thought very highly of back in the day when these passages were written. So contextually, I've not been called to be a king and lord it over you. What I've called is to a lowly office where I have a responsibility to protect you and care for you. But it's nothing that's going to exalt me. Shepherd is different than rule, right? So what's, what's the shepherd supposed to be doing? Well, an inglorious, self-sacrificing, self-expending job wherein he guides the people in his care into prosperity and flourishing. My job is to point you in the direction of those green pastures that Jesus promises in Psalm 23 and those quiet waters that he promises there and through the valley if we end up in it and on the mountain when we happen to be on it. My job is not to beat you all with my stick and make you do stuff for me. Pastors should not view themselves as glorious people. And would to God that more men who hold the office of pastor understand that this unspeakable privilege we have does not exalt us over anybody else. Shepherd the flock among you. 
means die to yourself to care for them. So how do we do it? Under compulsion? Nope. Willingly, as God would have you, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the tasks involved in shepherding are also indicated. I'm supposed to, and the other elders who end up being elders here will do this. We will exercise oversight willingly, not for personal enrichment, but eagerly, and not domineering, but setting an example. So first, a pastor is someone who is mature. Second, a pastor is somebody who exercises oversight. He oversees the church, which means, look right at me because I'm not trying to hide. That means he has authority. And he must exercise it for the good of the congregation. Okay? Third, he's not in it for the money, but because he has an unquenchable desire to protect and tend the people who make up what God calls his church. I'm not in this for the money. It's a very nice, um, what would you call that? benefit. But I have found that guys who can't preach unless they're being paid probably are not really pastors. And I think all those of you who know me would say, yeah, that that dude preaches even when he's not being paid to. He wants people to know Jesus even when no one's writing him any checks or giving him any love offerings. And that flows not from the fact that I'm so awesome, but that God has put in me a desire and the corresponding gifts to be able to do that. Not everybody has them. The, the difficult part of that is I will be held to account for having imparted to me the desire and the gifts. What did I do with them? And if I waited around for a paycheck, I think Judgment Day wouldn't go real well for me. Right? So he's not in it for the money. And fourth... He does not domineer. Now, this is, how many of you have used that word this week? None, right? It's not a common word that we use every day, so I want to flush it out. Domineering is asserting one's will over someone else in an arrogant way. Okay. The time is going to come, if things continue on the trajectory that we're on, where I will be established here with other men as a shepherd, as a pastor. And that means you are going to likely see me exercise my authority in the context of this assembly of believers. Um, Ask yourselves three questions when the time comes that you see me exercising my authority. And there I make them really easy because it's that mnemonic trick where they all start with the same letter. Is James doing this for his own enrichment? Is he doing this for his own enjoyment? Or is he doing this in service to his own ego? And if you see me exercising pastoral authority to enrich myself, entertain myself, or make myself feel amazing, then I suggest you and I have a conversation and you straighten whatever is crooked, okay? That's not the purpose of a man exercising pastoral authority. Let's look at some verses. Galatians 6, verse 1. Everybody go there. (coughs) 
brothers and sisters, right? I'll add that in, brothers and sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. One of the ways you'll see a pastor exercise authority is when someone is caught in a transgression. Um, We all understand if you see somebody entangled in sin, that you have an obligation as their brother or sister to try to detangle them. So you go to them and you say, hey, what you're doing is sin. It's not healthy and you need to stop and I will help you stop. If it gets to the point where I'm engaged, where I'm saying to somebody, hey, what you're doing is evil and it needs to stop, there's a couple things that are going to be true. Number one, that's probably a member of our church. That's probably somebody that we're in covenant relationship with. Okay. Number two, when you see me do that, it's probably going to be a little bit more forceful and a little bit more scary than when you do it. Because it's gotten to that point. It should not look like I am beating them. That exhortation, however forceful it may be, had better be accompanied with tears and prayers. Or it's usually about entertainment, enjoyment, and ego. If I'm so spiritual that I'm going to try to restore you out of some sin, it needs to look like an act of compassion and love, not me berating you. Does that make sense? Okay. Hebrews 12, 15. See to it, Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. I cannot see to it that all of you obtain the grace of God. That is outside my purview as a human being. Right? I can't make anybody take hold of the grace of God. It's that uh, the proverbial, you can lead the horse to water. I can do that, but I can't make anybody obtain the grace of God. So it seems to me what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, see to it that you are not the reason that anybody fails to obtain the grace of God, which means that my interaction with you and the exercise of my pastoral authority had better be accompanied by enough grace that I'm not a hindrance to you understanding and taking hold of the grace of God. A domineering pastor doesn't do that. Because it's about his entertainment, his ego, or his enrichment. And they hinder people from taking hold of grace because of those things. We can't be like that. Finally, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. Oh, side note on Hebrews 12, 15. I don't even have this in my notes, but the Lord just gave it to me. So let me say this too. See to it that that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. The fact that that is attached to an exhortation to see to it that people obtain the grace of God indicates to me that one of the reasons so many 
quote-unquote Christians who don't go to church anymore and don't want to have anything to do with organized religion anymore, part of the reason they are the way they are is because men who hold the office that I have historically held have done a really bad job of helping them obtain grace. This is why I stand before this Manhasset music stand every Sunday with, with a trembling because I know I'm going to give an account for whatever comes out of my mouth up here. And when I give counsel, I give it guardedly because I know I'm going to give an account. And if I do something that pushes you in the direction of being a bitter, resentful hag, like I'm going to give an account for that too. Not just you, but you're going to get, you know, whatever. Like you'll have your responsibility. First John three sixteen. by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If anyone has the world's good, goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, a shepherd is somebody who is prepared to lay down his life for the sheep, which means that while it may seem like a massive inconvenience to me, to give up my spare time and energy to tend the needs of the church, it shouldn't be. And my wife and my children understand that it, it's, it's not, that it's, 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 it's what it looks like to make sure that the church is cared for. There has to be a laying down of what's mine in order to serve and provide for you. If you've got a pastor who has... You know, he guards his time. I commend him, right? I commend men in the ministry who know how to guard their time. But some men in the ministry guard it a little too well, and I think they could stand to go read this verse. There, there are those times when you need to give up what's yours to somebody else in service to them. Because I'm guessing the day is not going to come in the next couple of years where I can literally lay down my life for you. I ought to be willing at least proverbially or metaphorically to lay down my life for you, which means give up of my time and my resources. And that's a call that I believe extends to the family of a man who calls himself a shepherd. So I'm constantly setting the expectation with my wife and kids that, you know what, not all of my time is works and not all of my time is yours and not all of my time is the church's. And we're going to try to hold these things in balance, but there will be those days where you don't see me because I'm busy doing this instead. It's sacrificial, it's not self-aggrandizing. So if what you just heard is me going, I'm just a martyr and don't you feel bad for me? I don't get a lot of time with my family. First of all, that's a load of garbage. I get tons of time with my family. But second of all, my point is, we've gotta be willing to give up for the service of the church our lives. That's what shepherds do. Jesus says, when the wolf comes, the hireling, who's not a shepherd, flees. But the real shepherd, the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. That's Jesus, and I'm supposed to imitate him. So what's pictured by those verses is authority and resources being exercised by a man in the service of the lives of others, not himself. Does that make sense? Pretty straightforward. Remembering, too, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense, which sometimes it's helpful for people to remember the definition that I have of love when I give them the definition of hypocritical love. 
Real love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. Hypocritical love is an act of the will accompanied by deception designed to do yourself good at somebody else's expense. If your pastor is not loving you, you need to find another pastor. But you better know what the definition of love is. Right? Okay. So a pastor is mature, oversees the church with authority, isn't in it for the money, does not abuse the sheep, and he is an example to the flock. So that's verse 3, 1 Peter 5. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So a pastor is someone whose life is worth imitating. Let us go see how. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Everybody hopefully is kind of still there. You can flip back and forth easily. We're almost done, FYI. Because I think you guys understand the meanings of words. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the qualifications are the man is above reproach. This means no obvious This means no obvious besetting sin in his life. This does not mean he is sinlessly perfect. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. He should be the husband of one wife. That does not mean that he has to be married. It means that he's a one-woman man. Uh, I'll soldier on. I'm a one-woman man, just FYI. I don't know how anybody, like, I can't keep one happy. What am I going to (laughs) do? Sober-minded. Okay, (laughs) bad timing. Uh, He takes seriously the things of God, the ministry of the word and the protection and provision of the church. It does not mean that he is some kind of a dullard who just sits around bemoaning the condition of the world. If you can't have fun with your pastor, then I'm clearly not your pastor. And you should make me your pastor. Self-controlled. Not controlled by his passions, but controls himself. So you see these guys that fly off the handle, like regularly, like probably not pastor material, probably not elder material. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say this. You should be evaluating the other men here because I am not going to be the sole shepherd of Springfield Baptist Church. I'm going to have some guys uh, who share that responsibility and authority with me equally. We're not doing the senior pastor, associate pastor thing. We're going to do the plurality of elders thing, okay? I'm not going to have any more authority here than the other guys. So be thinking about whether or not they meet these qualifications. Respectable. When you look at this man, you do not see someone whose life is disordered and chaotic, marked by pandemonium and disorganization. I always say, if you want to see the inner man, look in the backseat of his car or his garage 
Like, that's who that guy is. The front room might be clean, the porch might be well painted, but if you go down in the basement, you find out what a man is really about. Uh, organization is important. Respectability is important. Hospitable. This does not mean that he invites people into his house and his wife makes them pumpkin cake. It's not what it means. It's, that could be part of it. But what it really means is he loves strangers. So a shepherd, a pastor, is someone who demonstrates kindness to people he does not know. Now, I want to emphasize this one because I think it's something I'm good at. We'll just move on. Able to teach. Did you all notice how humble I am? Able to teach. This means he he understands and can communicate the gospel. We've turned able to teach into he understands it. And you know because he has a degree or three hanging on the wall behind his oaken desk. Able to teach means when I get done, you feel like, most Sundays you feel like, I, I understand what it was he was trying to communicate. I was reminded of something that I knew by that message, or I was encouraged in some way by the truth of the word of God. Or some of you can even say, I learned the gospel from that guy. I didn't believe, and he taught it to me, and I became somebody who believes. Not a drunk. Like, this is self-explanatory, but I would add that it means this man is free to enjoy all that God has provided. He's also free to not enjoy all that God has provided. So, I smoke and I drink. Just get it out there in the open. You're welcome to smoke and drink with me. And if you don't, smoke and drink, then guess what you'll never see me trying to get you to do? And if you struggle with it, I'll never do it around you. And it may not be okay for you. You may not have that freedom. So he's not a drunk. He's not pugnacious. I know you all know what that means, but for just in case there's somebody here who doesn't, I'm going to go through it, okay? Um, Pugnacious means a brawler. This is somebody who just loves a good fight. disqualified gentle he yields ground in order to keep things equitable and balanced he's not constantly vying for and fighting for his rights this is so important in a plurality right if i'm gentle and i have men who are serving next to me as shepherds then i don't have to always have my way and i'm not always a little bit more right than they are I'm gentle. I recognize God, I'm not God's gift to anybody. It's by the mercy of God that I live and move and have my being. So I, I, I don't lord it over anybody else that I live and move and have my being. Peaceable. I don't thrive on chaos and disunity. I do not love to argue. Now, listen to me. When I was 18, that was not true of me. But I'm 41. And I would rather abandon the quarrel at this point. And it's not just because I've been beaten down and I lack energy. It's not worth it. Free from the love of money. I mean, we've kind of covered this. He's not obsessed with possession, status, or prestige. And then verse four, well, verses four and five give us the proving ground for these things. So verses four and five say he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, 
And if someone do, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Go see him, uh, how a man cares for his family if you want to know how he's going to care for the church. And I'll say it again. And it probably sounds like I'm insecure about seminary. I'm not. But seminary does not tell you anything about how a man's going to care for the church. And I've heard people like this week invoke extra biblical metrics on me in order to tell me that I shouldn't be a pastor. We go to all kinds of lengths to come up with new ways to get people to conform to a certain image of what we think a pastor should be. But God is very clear. Here are the qualifications, and here's where you can go see if he meets them. Talk to his wife, talk to his kids. Watch his wife, watch his kids. What do you think? Is he perfect? No. Is he legitimately doing these things? If yes, then that's your guy. Not a new convert. Again, we've covered this. Immature believers are ripe for Satan's harvest. And the ministry is no place for an infant in the gospel. And finally, my favorite one, a good reputation outside the church. You don't want a pastor who is despised in the community as a worthless man. Paul may have been in chains in Jerusalem, right? In the end of Acts. But I can't help but notice everybody that interacted with that guy as he was in chains on his way to prison, they were all kind of impressed with him, right? Even the chief priest had to be like, oh man, he got us again, man. Scott, you need a man leading the church who has a good reputation with the community. Otherwise, when I go to the school board meeting and y'all aren't there because you got to work or whatever, and I say, yeah, I'm the pastor at Springfield Baptist Church, and I'm here to say X, Y, or Z. It carries a little weight. They're not going, oh, it's the drunk pastor. Oh, it's the pastor who's having an affair. Oh, it's the pastor who domineers over. Oh, it's that brawler pastor. Oh, it's that pastor who has no self-control. Oh, it's that pastor who's just in it for the money. Like, you don't want that, right? But if I meet those other qualifications and people in the community go, yeah, solid guy, I kind of like him maybe we'll be able to carry some influence into our culture, right? So you look for men who meet all the qualifications. To be clear, no man on earth fulfills these requirements perfectly. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 14 more sentences and then we're done. As a church, we need to appreciate the difference between the ideal and reality and try to find that happy medium right? Because I'm certainly not perfect. Um, If you watch a man long enough, you will see him stumble, right? You watch a man long enough, you'll see him stumble. My question is when he falls, does he fall forward or does he fall backward? So this week, (laughs) work is really weird. It's very strange. I have a boss He just does not have the tools at his disposal to do his job very well. And then I show up and he's like, you'll do everything because you can kind of do a little bit. So I'm, I've been there a month and I'm training the next person because he lacks the tools to do that job. So he's like, well, you've got teaching skills. That's obvious. Let's have you trainer. And I'm like, I lack the repository of information, but I will impart the knowledge that I have so far. 
Needless to say, it's not going great. It's going okay. So I had a moment uh, at the end of the day, I think it was Thursday, where this person that I'm training gets a call. It's kind of wonky. Things aren't straight down the middle. She gets done. I explain to her what I think is actually going on. And then my boss calls and wants to have a meeting with me just to kind of like have the day go. So I'm on a meeting with my boss and, and I say, hey, actually just got this call where this, this, and this happened. And I think this, 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 and this. And he goes, that's the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Please tell me you didn't say that to her. And of course, I had just finished saying that to her. But for some reason, in that moment, I'm looking at my camera and he's on it on my computer. And I went, oh, no, 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 I didn't know. And I'm like, why did I say no? And I know why I said no. I said no, I didn't tell her that because now I know he disagrees with it. I'm like, I don't want to look bad. I don't want her to look bad. So as, he, as we're finishing our meeting, I'm typing to her, forget everything that I just said <laughs> before I came into this meeting. And then I go back out and I circle with her and I'm like, listen, I blew it. That was incorrect. He doesn't want your mind filled with this nonsense. So just put it aside, right? And I'm like, okay, I think that'll be okay. I think I did enough. But the Holy Spirit was like, from that moment on, the Holy Spirit was like, you know, that's not enough, you liar. I got home, I did family, dinner, everybody hang out. I go to bed, I sleep, I get up in the morning. I'm like, I've got to tell my boss that I lied to him last night. So Friday morning, I get there a little bit early. I go, I wave at him. I pop open his door. I said, let me know when you've got a minute. And he said, is it the apocalypse? Because he knows I'm a pastor. And I said, no, it's no big deal. And he said, okay, I'll let you know when I'm free. I shut the door. I go back to my desk. 15 minutes later, he says, come on, let's talk. So I go in his office. I sit down. And I go, look, dude, I got to level with you. Last night, we're on our meeting. I said, I told Ashley this, that, and the other thing. And you said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Please tell me you didn't tell her that. And I said, I didn't. And he's like smiling and nodding. And I go, well, the fact is I did. And I said, and the reason I told you that I didn't is because I didn't want you to be disappointed with me, but that's stupid. And I just want to be honest with you and let you know what actually happened. And he said, yeah, I honestly forgot all about it, but I'm glad that you, you came and told me this so that, you know, we can clean it up. Now, what would have meant more to him? If I got caught later on having lied to him or that I owned it to him, what would have stuck with him longer? I'm not a perfect man, but I try to fall forward. All right. What's the trajectory of that man? What do his children think of him? Sam, what do you think of me? Just kidding. Uh, If... (laughs) If Springfield is to become a church in the coming months, we're going to need more shepherds. So let's beg God to raise up men from among us who we can enthusiastically support. Men who meet these qualifications. They're mature in the faith. That's most important. They can oversee the church with authority. They're not in it for the money. They don't abuse the sheep. But as Jesus says in John 21, when he's restoring Peter to ministry, They tend God's lambs. Let's pray to God that he would give us men like that and ask him for such men because we can't have a healthy church without them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.